Carol. First things first, I sincerely hope you had a wonderful vacation with your family last week and got to enjoy some serious alone time with Eddie over the last few days in Vegas. By the way, send my regards to Aunt Este. As you already know, I'm sending you the first installment of our introductory call and response episode of Squawking Dead. The call and response episodes are basically our way of ripping off the Vlogbrothers, Hank and John Green. I'll send you the entire episode. Take a moment to listen to the entire call first, then record your response to each point and send it back over to me. At the end of the week, I'll cut it all up into what will eventually be called episode 18. I also want to remind you that we've got to cover both episodes 2 and 3 of Fear the Walking Dead season 4, and you'll have to bear with me a little. Part of what's taken me so long to find the strength to cover both of these episodes are because of the events that transpire at the end of episode 3, Good Out Here. After that episode, I was devastated. Maybe it's just me, but it would be extremely difficult to cover episode 2, Another Day in the Diamond, pretending that I don't know what I know. The best way to describe how it felt, it was as though I was attempting to head back to work after my best friend died. I I just couldn't do it. I just couldn't pretend to not know what I know. It would feel as though I was lying to myself and our audience while betraying my feelings. We're artists, Carol, and I think you feel the way I feel. I want to be able to say that I gave our audience our best, and not some sort of half-assed, soulless recap of a podcast. Now that we've gotten that out of the way. This is my response to our Squawking Dead, Fear the Walking Dead coverage of episode two and three. I have to say, even coming to this as, I guess, non-regular Fear the Walking Dead fan, I have to say I've been pretty impressed, and this last episode three, which we'll obviously get to, really got to me, which I was very surprised about. I did not anticipate it having that effect, especially because, like I said, I wasn't as invested as Dave or other people, but I I have to say, it was very well done and uh, really hit me in the feet. Man, so let's get to it. After meeting John Dory, Althea, and Morgan, we basically run into our season regulars at the end of the episode. Our season regulars are not in good shape. They look ragged, they look weary, and they look aggressive. And more importantly, they're costing the very people we started to enjoy getting to know at the beginning of the episode. Episode 2 basically starts off in the past. We see our group waking up in this newfound place. A place I'm going to be calling the Diamond from here on in. The Diamond is basically a reclaimed baseball stadium. Minor league maybe. And what they've managed to do out there is basically funnel water, uh, create a sewage system, I think. They've turned the luxury VIP rooms into bedrooms. Like dormitories, that sort of thing. And they seem to have carved out a pretty good life for themselves. They've been hunkered down in this stadium that they've made into their home. Kind of like Rick and the Grimes family with the prison, or even Alexandria. It kind of reminded me more of the prison, though, for some reason. As we listen on in the episode, we start to realize that they've been living there for a year already. So not only have we jumped into the past, but there's a whole chunk of time that's gone missing and is unaccounted for from the time we left off season three after the dam exploded. Take, for example, one very important thing. At the end of episode one, one of the remarks that I made right away is, where did Luciana come from? Because who knows how much time has passed since the dam exploded. And from the time they found the diamond, and who knows, Luciana may not have shown up until they found the diamond. So we really don't know when Luciana came back to the picture. But we open up in episode two with Nick and Luciana waking up together, and they're obviously together all the way until the present. So that's a pretty good sign. They must have found each other, and they're just as much in love with each other as they were before. And I'd say even more to the point, they've found a way to sort of joke around. They have like a little side gag about basically Nick telling his mom and uh, Madison 
Madison and his sister Alicia. Hey, just make sure she comes back this time, which I found to be very amusing. For some reason, a lot of people took this very seriously and being married for only a little while and being together with my wife for a couple years, uh, you know, we find ways to joke with each other to kind of bring levity, but I guess a lot of people took that very seriously in the comments and I just thought it was kind of amusing. I also wanted to note something that was very cool that you see in the beginning of the episode and you find out later on what it is. Alicia is coring out a baseball and later on those baseballs are used in the like the batting cage machine that you used to put the baseballs in. Basically shoots out the baseballs so that the batter can bat them away and so they use that to actually clear the walkers. So they, they put little explosives, gunpowder or something in the baseballs and shoot them out into the uh, parking lot to distract the walkers so they can get out. So a little cool thing to maybe put a flag in so that you could so that in case it comes up later when dealing with the vultures maybe. Another thing to kind of take note is that they're not there alone. Uh, it seems as though in the year that they've lived at the Diamond, they have 47 other people to take care of. So they've acquired like an, enough pantry items, enough scavenging for a while, but they're starting to grow crops and they're trying to be all self-sufficient so they never have to leave again. To me, it sounds a lot like Alexandria, maybe even better than Alexandria. I mean, you've got stadium walls, concrete, so not quite sure if this is a good thing or a bad thing, but as we find out later on, they too are challenged with the outside world. And in some way, it kind of goes back to what Rick says to Morgan. The world really does find a way to come back to you. The world finds a way to reinsert itself in their lives. And in a way, they can't really escape what goes on in the outside world. So the next thing we leave off at is... We see Madison uh, talking to a young girl named Charlie, trying to get from her uh, when was the last time she saw her parents, and reassuring her about how they might still be out there and that she'll do everything she can to try and find them. This girl, Charlie, is fairly quiet, fairly elusive, but this kind of post-apocalyptic world is not necessarily anything unusual. Uh, trauma, obviously, that sort of thing. So, at the time, we don't think much of it. Part of the conversation that really intrigued me was, oddly enough, when Madison decides to change the subject on trying to find her parents, and she asks her what her favorite things are and what her least favorite things are, and one of the least favorite things is a, si- a salmon patty, or a Simon patty. That would be wonderful. A Simon patty would be delicious, I think. But anyway, a salmon patty, and they kind of go on to say, you know, you spend your whole life swimming upstream and end up a patty, and uh, Charlie basically says, should have swam the other way. And part of that is just so telling in terms of narration, and basically what ends up happening next. And it may be telling about the way our season series regulars are going about their lives in the past, in the diamond. And that in a way, we start to see that Madison really cares about saving people, about going out of her way to save others, about really just not only preserving life, but as much as possible beyond maybe even her capabilities. And in that respect, she's kind of like a salmon swimming upstream. You'd think it's against nature, but that's just the way the salmon works. But at the same time, the salmon don't know any better. And in many ways, and we've seen this in Madison, what she's capable of, whether or not it's right or wrong, it seems that she's going way out of her way to try to include more and more people, as many people as possible. Maybe almost Negan-like, that people are a resource. And that's actually a very good point to kind of touch on, because Negan had gone out of his way to preserve life, to, instead of wasting any opposition, manipulating them into his cause. Madison does it obviously a different way, a more humanitarian way. She has her kids. Negan didn't have his wife. He just had a bat. And that's kind of very telling. At the same time, you, you can see throughout the episode how far she pushes herself, how beyond the limits of her capability she goes or really within reason she goes to try to get at least Charlie's parents and then we see later on that she does other things as well it's worth pointing out that she has done this in the 
past, too. She's been more pragmatic about it, but the way she manipulated Troy at Brokejaw Ranch to basically do her bidding, and that was one way in which, hey, she could have just gotten rid of Troy. She could have just done away with him as a threat. He was basically responsible for killing Cliff in a way, but regardless, she saw an opportunity to use a broken child who really just wanted to be loved and manipulated him into doing whatever she wanted. And we're sort of seeing that now in the sense where instead of doing the practical thing and being safe and just taking care of her own, she takes care of as many people as possible. Now, I'm not saying this is a bad thing, but I am saying that maybe she's embracing this part of herself, this almost Negan-esque quality of herself. And so it kind of begs to see how this all plays out, especially when it comes to the vultures. And I think what we might see is her continuing to, instead of dealing with a threat, is somehow taking advantage of the situation or finding a way to manipulate it to her advantage, or maybe just trying to negotiate it instead of being like a Rick and trying to completely destroy opposition. Oh, and speaking of the vultures, I've been noticing that the opening credits show a different sequence each time. I love the music that they're using for this, rather than the kind of electronic dub steppy kind of opener, Nine Inch Nailsy kind of screeching, wake you up kind of sound. This is kind of pleasant. It's out in the West. It's it's really kind of like Old Westy. And, and if you haven't noticed, we kind of use it at the end of the episode to kind of signal that we're done. But more than anything else, and according to Talking Dead, basically, it's important to n- take note of the opening credits because they kind of tell a story. And as we move on, we might make a little montage at some point and post it or something just to see how the, the season's going so far. Probably episode eight. We'll string together the first half of them and we'll see how it goes. So as our group is waking up, they basically celebrate their year over the loudspeaker and Strand breaks out little uh, Vermont syrup, which is kind of a rarity out in the uh, Southwest. And basically, we start off with Madison building a room for Charlie in the dugout. And she really does want to include her, make her feel part of the group. And she's basically building this thing all night, trying to bust her hump, trying to do this. When we cut to the next scene, we see Nick and Charlie. I think Nick kind of looks at her almost like a little sister in a way, even though it doesn't necessarily mean that they have a close relationship, but it seems that he does look at her protectively. Nick and Charlie talking about Robert Johnson. Robert Johnson basically only lived to be 27, and one of the songs that he's best known for, Crossroad Blues, which is basically playing also at some point in the show. There's a legend behind it about him selling his soul to the devil so that he can gain his guitar and singing talents. Another important thing to remember is that Robert Johnson actually recorded in San Antonio, Texas, uh, three different sessions, which, okay, again, three is like the sign of the devil or something, or I don't know, it's a trinity, but you decide. But the overall significance of that selling your soul to the devil sort of thing is, is how Charlie basically sells out this group. For all intents and purposes, she sacrifices a family, a family that would love her and cherish her for these people. You know, maybe she is trading love, compassion, and warmth for a full belly because as we start to see later on is that the crops start to die and maybe food isn't as great and the vultures do exist. You know, they do what they do. They scavenge. They pick places clean, completely clean, down to the light bulbs and maybe there's no stopping them. So maybe it is better to join them because if you can't beat them, in any case, Madison's basically discussing the plan with the rest of the group during their normal daily routine of scavenging and part of her plan is to look for 
for Charlie's parents. And she discusses going outside the boundary, and I guess that boundary is the limit of the walkie's range. Even though Madison says she would do it for any one of them, they haven't done it yet. And it seems like the one day they decide to do it, shit starts to happen. So before we see Alicia and Madison and Strand move out, we pan to Strand basically checking a piece of concrete in his pocket. And I think one of the things that is important to remember is what Strand did at the dam. And I think that concrete is from the dam. Basically, Strand sold out, in a way, Madison and her family for his own ill-gotten gains. In some respects, he sold everybody out that he's ever met, and even the people that were he was really close with, like Madison. I mean, he does claim that he does this all to keep Madison's family safe, and maybe that's what he did, but the limits to which he went to actually do that probably put Madison more in danger than anything else. So, I think he keeps that piece of concrete in his pocket to remind him to slow his roll, maybe? Maybe use a sponsor if he's addicted to that kind of self-centered danger. Maybe he's trying to make it about him. Maybe it's a, maybe it's him just trying to claim power. Maybe he's just tapping into this rush that Nick gets as well. This sort of con man rush. The rush in the con, of the con and getting it to work. And the same thing that Nick does is he's just addicted to danger and, and surpassing certain death and danger and feats. So you have these two characters that are, are on this trajectory that could potentially kill them and the ones around them. But with that little piece of concrete in his pocket, I think it's just his little way of trying to keep things in check, remind him why he does the things he does, even if if it's for good, but just to remember to keep himself grounded. I think he's also trying to figure out well, how he's made it this long, maybe why Madison bothers with him to begin with. I mean, after everything that he's done, he still hasn't really asked the question of why Madison continues to keep him around, and so maybe it's just his way of counting his blessings, too. Another thing we start to notice before our little group leaves to try to scavenge and look for Charlie's parents is we basically learn that Nick has a hard time leaving the diamond. And just to kind of remind everybody, yeah, it's been a year that they've been living at the diamond, but Nick has almost never left, I think. And even before that, we don't know how much time has passed since that year from the time the dam exploded. So we don't know the state that Nick has been in since the dam exploded, but it seems as though we flash back to him hitting the water and maybe even almost drowning. We don't know exactly what happens, and I really do hope in some way we kind of either flashback briefly to what it was because there's a danger of us never finding out for obvious reasons later on. We see that Nick stays behind and we're kind of told that through a conversation Madison has with Luciana that he doesn't really venture much outside the walls of the stadium. So he's throwing himself into this whole farming thing. And yeah, it's worked out for the most part it seems, but as we'll find out later on, he's eventually forced to have to burn his whole crop because of weevils. The same weevils that were causing problems at the kingdom with King Ezekiel and he had to have all his crops burned. In the coming days, we see that the harvest situation's gotten worse, things haven't gotten any better, and uh, Nick is struggling with growing the crops and getting them to a better place. Which basically gives the vultures an entryway into abusing our group. And the one thing that seems highly suspicious is that the vultures seem to arrive at the perfect time where the crops actually start to die. And since Charlie's been there for two weeks, there's no telling what she's done to basically help out in that prospect. Had it not been for the crops dying, they could have just waited everything out and the vultures would have been outside forever. And I think what makes them menacing is their ability to hold out at the walls. And I think another thing to note is that so far in both episodes, we have not seen them raise a single gun. And I think that's what is most menacing is that they prey on good people. They don't mess with bad people, it seems. People that are highly unreasonable to say the least, but they take advantage of people who are specifically good pushes them to the point where 
they may do something but by the time they try to probably do that it's probably already too late so as strand alicia and madison venture out into i think it's called bartlett the town that they're trying to search for charlie's parents they happen to catch that 457 flag or number stapled atop one of the silos in the back of the town and it seems to be a disaster area one of them exploded and it left a huge mess of metal and debris and it seems as though there was a campsite that burned up you saw tents that were ravaged basically strand and alicia had been checking out some of the stores that were in the town luciano basically made note that the whole places all the places were picked completely clean and just as madison was rounding the corner of one of the silos on her own we find out a new character played by jenna elfman who is named naomi we found out later on the episode and basically puts madison's life in danger she is very flustered very squirrely that's the term that comes up and is very on the defense she seems to have been on the road the entire time basically completely alone it seems because the way she's treating madison i think she's been through some stuff in fact when they finally do get to talk to her and they finally do bring her back she basically mentions that she doesn't even remember where home used to be it's been so long she wants to basically steal their vehicle she does not want to join them even though madison tries to kind of plead the case to say you know you can join us you can be a part of our group madison does the swimming upstream routine she doesn't seem to really want to hear it in the meantime she's not stupid she signals she signals everybody by the walkie by just pressing it three times knowing that that's the signal that's the madison signal to head on over so she eventually is surrounded but she happens to slither away as you start to see her ascend the silos you start to see the noise makers on the actual railings you know all the silverware tied with string it sounds like to keep walkers from going up the stairs and heading to the top and it seems as though there was some sort of speakers and as we find out later on in the episode the vultures as they're circling around the stadium at night they're playing something similar to what the fat lady would play at the savior's camp which is probably basically designed to attract walkers and so we do see speakers at the top of the silos and a little a large hole at the top to basically probably contain them in and as i pointed out in the last episode it seems as though the numbers designate how many walkers are in whatever container they're in so 51 from the last episode was probably 51 walkers in total throughout all the buildings or at least that one that uh, morgan happened to crash into so 457 silo walkers basically she climbs to the top of one of the silos which honestly is never a good idea i feel like every time i've seen the walking dead anytime anybody's on a roof that roof inevitably always caves in which is exactly what happened here madison goes after her roof caves in they both go into the silo and what we find inside is basically oil slick and water and whatever rainwater came in as jenna elfman basically falls through the hole you know which was not stable to begin with they managed to get out and they managed to convince naomi to come back with them but there's one interesting scene before they leave and this is basically when strand and alicia blow the hatch to the silo that madison and naomi are stuck in Alicia runs in to get Madison and for a second you see Madison's back and she gets up really slowly and you start to hear the walker sounds and for a hot minute you start to think that Madison has turned. I notice the exact same thing. You kind of think uh oh what happened to her? And I think there's something significant about that. It may be foreshadowing because I don't know if Madison's going to make it out of the season alive. It definitely gave me that vibe immediately. And we see people when they start to get really really altruistic 
tragic and really moral, we do find that they end up not really making it. And not only not making it, just having the most sad ending. Almost like as if a, a punishment for trying to do good in this world. So it's just a very telling scene. Now, I could be reading too much into it, and it could just be a way for the showrunners to have a little fun with us. But I don't know. I don't see people dropping little hints like that for nothing. Now, before they leave... Nick wanted Luciana to see if she could find some books for Charlie, and she happens to find a copy of The Little Prince in one of the burnt-out camping tents near the silos. Now, what's really interesting about The Little Prince is that it just basically features this character who jumps from planet to planet trying to try to basically find a home. So I think that says a lot about maybe what's happening with Charlie in that she's basically forced to decide what family she wants to be with. But at the end of the day, when we get to the end of episode three, I'm not sure I give too much of a damn, but she's a kid. What does she know? Henry killed Gavin. Carl was almost a murdering psychopath if Rick hadn't intervened. And if you remember Rachel from Oceanside, that little kid, always telling everybody that they should kill whoever they've captured. Alana Masterson, Tara, trying to give her the middle finger. So kids kind of have an interesting way of expressing themselves in the apocalypse, if you know what I mean. One thing to note before they leave Bartlett is that basically they're trying to find out why Madison fights so hard to save Naomi. Naomi, even after they almost she almost killed everybody I think I guess she posed such a huge threat trying to extort Madison for her car and Madison basically says no one's gone till they're gone and I think that's some advice for Morgan too if you think about it after everything that he's descended to he's not gone yet and if you really think about it you could apply the same logic to Strand and maybe that's why she keeps him around no one's beyond that kind of redemption look at Nick he was a drug addict you can almost see what Nick has put his family through in the way he's acted in the apocalypse. Maybe the apocalypse was the way he was able to fit in this world, you know, how most people find themselves after the apocalypse. But at the same time, you can imagine him being this way in the real world. I mean, when we first see him, he's in a drug den in a condemned church. So he's basically been living on his own, it seems like. So there are so many clear examples of why people aren't gone till they're gone. And it's kind of especially telling, since Strand is the one really asking the question of why Madison bothers to save Naomi. The thing Things you hate in yourselves, you tend to question or hate in others. So I think part of him has been really, it's been burning to ask Madison the very same question. Why do you bother saving the people that feel like they're beyond redemption? So before the group heads back to the diamond, Nick is basically trying to rile himself up to see what the heck is going on outside of the stadium. It seems as though he's hearing operatic music outside the walls. And basically we find out it's the vulture's fat lady, but he's not the only one that could check it out. But I think it he feels at this point it's been too long he's gotta at some point do this and so he uh, asks Charlie to, to open the gate so that he can go out and check it out in the car and we see him flash back to the dam and him hitting the water and you can tell it's obviously still very traumatic for him to even leave the stadium it's almost like he has post-traumatic stress from whatever happened with the dam or afterwards we're not necessarily clear and we see him trying his best he goes out pretty slowly things seem to be going okay and then he just doesn't realize that walkers are kind of surrounding him and before he knows it, he's speeding his way through and he just hits a pole. Cole, this one guy from the camp, this particular guy has been trying to impress Strand this entire time by complimenting him and trying to buttering him up and, and really trying to impress him so that he can get in with the in-group, you know, our, our series regulars. But Cole basically takes a couple of shots off at the walkers that are trying to eat Nick in the car. And Nick barely gets away before Madison and the rest come back from the excursion and take him and bring him in. Oh, I just also wanted to plant a flag here. Since they found 
found out about the weevils eating all the turnip crop. Turnips. If you remember what turnips are, it's basically the only thing that the hilltop had at the time when they captured the satellite saviors back in season 8. I just thought that was something very interesting that we link up between the two worlds. It seems like turnips are a sign of bad things to come. But it's a good thing they came back with Naomi because Naomi is an actual ER and ICU nurse. So she's able to patch Nick up who is worse for the wear as a result of heading outside. So I don't think he's going out there anytime soon. But it's a good thing they have some sort of nurse, a doctor. I mean, nurse can do basically most of what doctors can do anyway. So what a good find. In the meantime, though, Douglas, one of the guys that lived there and was advising Madison to not go out past the boundary to retrieve Charlie's parents, he and a couple of other people, Cole, are trying to get the car back inside, the car that basically Nick had to abandon because he hit the pole and doesn't seem to be running. As they're trying to get inside the stadium, it seems as though we finally meet the vultures, the people behind the music that was playing off in the distance. Luciana sees them via the binoculars while they're you know, trying to push the car and they don't really realize that they're coming. Luciana tells them to rush inside and they abandon the car to head inside the walls. The group that shows up outside their doors is a caravan, really, of cars, of vans, buses. So it's quite an arsenal of cars that all basically park their cars outside the stadium. You see these kind of hipstery looking people, post-Burning Man, almost like hobo clowns without makeup. The dude that comes out of the El Camino, who we later learn is Ennis. His brother's Mel, who leads the vultures. And Ennis basically takes a, a bike out. You know, obviously it's a sing, it's a single speed bike because he's a hipster. And he basically circles around the parking lot, gathering some of these walkers and leading them into an open trailer that they eventually shut. The group within the stadium, they just kind of watch this very confused, sort of probably the way most of us were. Just not sure what to make of the situation. And it seems that that's what they do. It seems that these are the people that are responsible for the flag out in Building 51, which we see in the future, just to remind you people where we are. They're probably responsible for the 457 in the silos at Bartlett, and they're now responsible for the number 12 in the truck. So I think we've confirmed 12 walkers. These are the number of walkers. And what it seems to be is that Building 51 and between that and Bartlett, how there were no walkers in the streets, seems like they're basically either cleaning up the place or storing these walkers for later on to weaponize them against anybody who would basically try to stave them off in a sort of siege. They could use the walkers to their advantage and they definitely have some sort of fat lady. They manipulate sound. They use certain distraction devices. So they weaponize the walkers to their advantage to see if they can break down good people, basically. I don't think they want to use violence or use walkers. I think they're very practical. I think they go after good people only. They try not to mess with people that are just out there to murder. So what we find out later on is that Charlie has been leaking them all all this information about the camp. Kind of the way a lot of us thought Enid was filtering information to the wolves. I don't know if you remember back in, God, I want to say it was season five, when Enid was so mysterious, we kind of didn't know much. We weren't sure this when they had the wolves and we weren't sure that maybe she's a wolf, maybe she's feeding information when she kept escaping over the wolves. As Mel calls them out, he calls Charlie to come outside and she comes out with them and basically Mel seems to know a lot about them after Charlie's been there for about two weeks. She knows the pantry reserves are not quite great he knows exactly how much ammo and guns they have, knows everybody's name, knows even that Nick has a problem leaving the compound. Kind of 
gave me the vibes of Garrett from Terminus. I don't know if he gave anybody else those vibes. It's also pretty interesting what Mel calls walkers. He calls them the fallen. And we've already found out that Althea calls them the dead. John Dory calls them the past. You know, we call them walkers. We've heard on this show that they've been called the infected. So there's a, there's a bunch of new ways that we're referring to zombies, basically. And one more thing to note is that both Charlie and Georgie from The Walking Dead, the woman we meet who looks a lot like Hillary Clinton, they both love records. I just thought that was something interesting. Charlie really likes that Robert Johnson vinyl record. Georgie likes a whole bunch of records. Uh, so I don't know. Maybe there's some sort of connection. Maybe Georgie is her mother. <laughs> so the one thing Mel brings up in the encounter with Madison, Madison basically heads out to meet him. Mel brings up an interesting point about how these types of settlements turn out, and especially how they turn out with the vultures. We've seen this happen with Alexandria. We've seen this happen with many different settlements. What ends up happening, especially for the, the ones that are really fortified, the ones who think they can block out the outside world, the outside world finds a way to rattle their cage, to make them, the outside world seems to always find a way in. It's not exactly Negan like because Negan would keep you alive, use your goods, and keep you working for him. The impression you get from this guy and his group is not so much that. It's more, hey, you might as well give us all your stuff because we're going to take it anyway. And he even tries to say that this is this sort of like a life cycle of these things. You're not going to be able to live this isolated life in this stadium forever. Eventually, this run of the luck you're going to have is going to run out. And we're going to be right there waiting outside to pillage once it runs out. And what's interesting is that Madison does have a viewpoint into the vultures' way of life. It's not as though they weren't living on the road. It's not as though they haven't been trying to survive. But she does bring up the fact that we've lived like you lived. We've lived, survived out in the wilderness, and who knows what they've been through since the dam. But Mel seems to kind of, for maybe the only time, lose his cool a little bit over what Madison says. And when Ma Madison basically says that we found a better way, you know, basically the diamond, and Mel says, you know, do you think you're better than us? And he basically says, you just haven't been tested. And I thought that was particularly interesting because I think in some sort of way, he's proud of it. He's proud of what he's been able to build. He's proud that he's putting food in people's bellies. Maybe even proud of the fact that they don't, I don't think they use violence. I just think they use good tactics to try to basically keep what they pick off everybody. But I think the most important thing to remember is that Madison and crew have been tested. I think Madison and Mel, they're going to butt heads in ways that we haven't seen before. And maybe even Madison will show us the extent to which her benevolence reaches. The one thing that I thought of when I saw this encounter is I'm kind of liking this new Madison. I kind of like that she is malleable and because as we see as this encounter ends, the very next day, she's still building that room for Charlie. She's still making that home. She's basically faking it till she makes it. She knows what's right in this world. She knows that even though Charlie may never come around, she's still acting as though when she does, she'll have a room ready for her to be with the people she loves. And so I kind of like that. I like that she acts in a way that she's preparing for the good things to happen. And so what, what I sincerely thought about after this whole encounter with Mel was that there's no reason why Madison couldn't just invite these guys in to hang out, to be a part of this community. And from the way Mel reacts to Madison, the way he thinks, oh, she thinks she's better than us. You know, I know better. I know that this is the way to be. That it's, you know, eat or be eaten, you know, or just wait for people to be stupid and, you know, we'll pick their bones because we're the vultures. So it's maybe these clashing of philosophies. Maybe Madison is still stuck in the, or still trying to recapture what was once in the old world. Maybe it's, it's a lot in the way that Rick is trying to change things around to try to bring back incarceration 
rather than just kangaroo court and death as punishment. And Madison fi- seems to find this philosophy a lot earlier to basically try to bring back humanity. And these guys are basically saying, hey, this is the, I, we deal with the world on its on this terms, you know, on the terms that they are right now. And that this is how we're going to live life. And, and we, we're not going back. So I think this is the thing that really causes these two ideas to butt heads more than anything else. Because I think Madison would genuinely find a way to incorporate these guys into their lives. So when we see that Madison's still building the room for Charlie, the rest of them seem to join along as well. I mean, they basically take cues from her. They're seeing that Madison's just trying to build a better world. And you know what? We get it. This is a stark contrast from the way the Clarks have been throughout the previous seasons. We've constantly seen each and every one of them take a different path or different attitude when it comes to how to deal with this world. And for the first time, we're kind of seeing them all in sync, and it's kind of interesting. And it's kind of like what the showrunners were saying about hope in this season. In some point, we're trying to build our way towards a hopeful future. It's kind of a stark contrast to what The Walking Dead had been for the last couple of seasons. And, oh, and I love the fact that they're doing all this while Mama said this is like this country song is playing on the uh, on the speaker, you know, in the in the background in the in the episode. And it's basically about a man who was condemned, who kind of lived his life badly, did wrong things, but he mentions that his mama tried to keep him on the right path. So I think that was kind of cool, a cool little thing. And while this is all happening, Luciana takes the little prince book and leaves it in front of Charlie's bus as kind of like a symbol of good faith. Like, hey, you still have a place here. You don't have to sell your soul like Robert Johnson to be safe. You have a means for love and appreciation and, and adoration and you have a place here. You know, it may not be great. You know, it may not be perfect. You may not have a, a meal in your in your stomach all the time, but we will always try our best to give you a better life. And that's basically where we leave off with them in the past. We kind of cut to the future right away. And as you remember, Alicia, Nick, and Strand, and Luciana have captured the misfits, John, Dory, Althea, and Morgan. And as they're going through our misfits things, they find the 51 flag. They happen to take it with them. Luciana specifically grabs the flag on their vehicle and frantically exclaims that they are with them. And none of these people know what she's talking about. You have to remember some considerable amount of time seems to have passed since whatever has transpired until they meet John, Dory, Althea, and Morgan. These episodes very much flow one into the other, so it definitely keeps it very fluid so far, which is very interesting and definitely keeps you hooked. We're left with the misfits tied up in the back of Althea's van, and they are driving over to what seems to have been directions from Althea of where this place is, but they seem to be going nowhere. It's at that point that Nick kind of confronts Althea and says, hey, stop messing with us. And Althea has taken enough crap, and she's basically saying, I'll give you the rest of the directions if you guys agree to just give me your story. A story for this building seems like a fair trade, doesn't it? And the most important thing that Althea tries to get them to realizes that, hey, look, it really should be about us versus the dead. And this is something that Carl tries to bring up with Rick and Negan when he tries to get them to make peace. What's out there is the enemy. You know, we're the last line of defense for any of those dangers out there. It shouldn't be us fighting each other. And Althea brings this up very succinctly. So in essence, what's the big deal if I just want to interview you for just finding out what, what your story is, what what your deal is, where you've come from, how, how you're dealing with this world? What's the big deal if it means that you get to 
find out more about these numbers on these buildings. Meanwhile, that gives Althea enough time to get out of her zip tie bonds. It happens very quickly, actually. Althea kind of flips the script and all of a sudden gets Nick in a headlock with a knife to his neck. It seems like she's some sort of probably international reporter. She's probably been in hostage situations. She's trained herself in some sort of defense classes. She has those combat knives. She has a combat vehicle, for goodness sake. So she seems to get out of her zip ties pretty easily and tries to take Nick down. The whole melee causes them to drive the SWAT van into a ditch off the highway and they can't seem to get out. And now our misfits basically have control over our series regulars. Meanwhile, Nick is injured in the van. He also kind of sees like in this bleary state, not to, to mention bleary-eyed right, but in his bleary-eyed state, he also sees Luciana also in the driver's seat passed out with head injury as well. And he passes out and we immediately go back to the, to the past again. The vultures have been out there for a little while and Nick decides to go with Madison on a scavenging mission. Obviously they had to burn up all the crops. Now it's time to really go out and Nick says, hey, it's time for me to do this already. Especially now that there's nothing for me to do here. He decides to join Madison on this run because he just feels that um, feels that he should, quite honestly. And Madison's not sure he necessarily is fit to just because obviously we know that something happened that has kind of traumatized him from going outside, but he feels that he needs to. I feel like it's important to remind everybody that this is probably the second time Nick has hit his head and had probably almost a borderline concussion. Once in the past when he tried to leave the diamond and figure out what was going on out there with the music and now he has hit his head in the SWAT van in the present. Basically after he and Althea caused the vehicle to swerve under Luciana's driving care. He's had a lot of head injuries is all I'm saying. So anyway, what's interesting is that, yes, while Madison and Nick go out in the past to try to scavenge, we zoom back to the future. The walkers that descended upon their sidelined SWAT car in a ditch have been handled. We see Althea, Morgan, and John Dory free, and we see that Strand, Alicia, and Luciana have all had their hands or wrists tied, and Nick was on the ground still passed out from his head injury. When he does come to, what they do say is that they need to get this SWAT car out of this ditch. What Luciana says is that she knows that back in this other town that they saw the crane that they could use in order to pull the SWAT car out. And Strand says something very interesting about the start of a negotiation often requires an act of faith. And I think that resonates with Althea. Look, she's an out-of-place character. She's a journalist in the apocalypse. There's just no need for that. And I think part of that lends itself to a certain, at least a truth-finding mission and a belief that there is some sort of good in this world, even though you're surrounded by really bad people. But it's something that Luciana finds out really quick is that yes she allows herself to put herself in certain situations in search for the truth but she's no dummy she is definitely capable she has the tools and the wit to basically get out of situations like that she's almost like a jesus in a sense and all jesus ever wants to do is bring some sort of equanimity to the world or something and i think he does that by placing himself in certain situations that for all intents and purposes most people couldn't get out of but i think althea gets out of them you know whether it's via the SWAT van, whether it's via combat skills, whether it's her being able to escape her bounds at any given moment, but she seems very resourceful. Althea basically says to Morgan, hey, because he, he kind of wants to leave, you know, he doesn't really want to be around any of these people, he just wants to move on. She says, kind of like the way Nick was saying to Alicia or Madison about Luciana, hey, you can be here when we get back. He, she says the same thing to Morgan, you're going to be here by the time we get back? And Nick does say the same thing to Alicia about Luciana again, hey, make sure she gets back. I thought that was kind of telling, you know, and there may be 
something to Althea and Morgan, maybe. You never know. And so basically Strand, Alicia, and Luciana head out with Althea to the service station while Morgan basically watches Nick. I mean, there's nothing else for Morgan to do. He's just going to slow him down because he was still shot in that last episode by uh, Leland and the Pilferers. Morgan is very much peaceful Morgan at this point. He's very much not in a violent state whatsoever. And while they're waiting, there was a very interesting scene between Nick and Morgan. Morgan basically untied Nick because Nick is all like ADHD. Yeah, he just can't sit still and basically he, he gets a peanut butter protein bar from his pack and offers a piece to Morgan which is a very interesting callback to The Walking Dead Season 3, that episode clear where we meet Morgan again. And Michonne is basically eating something from Morgan's apartment. Morgan's not in his right mind and she's just kind of like, well, he's not acting right and so maybe I should just take advantage of the situation to eat something. And in Season 6 Morgan brings it up actually out of nowhere. Now that Morgan's in his right mind he met Eastman so he's kind of at peace but there's just something that had been burning in the back of his mind. He's like, Michonne, did you eat my peanut butter protein bar? Now I could have sworn I had a peanut butter protein bar. And I think it came up again. Rick and Morgan are together and Rick kind of admitted and and told him that it was Michonne who ate his protein bar and he basically says that he knew. It's kind of funny that this comes up yet again. And I like the fact that Morgan had a little smile when it gets offered to him. It's almost kismet. You know, this, this random guy knows exactly what I like. And so, uh, <laughs> it's just this one interesting moment uh, that we can look at and, and, and just get a callback for and it's just and he accepts it's like John Dory's candy <laughs> after he unties him there was there was a little bit of a scene where Nick tries to test his limits with Morgan and, and Morgan kind of just shows him hey you, you don't mess with me look I'm untying you but I can definitely handle you and so Nick tries to, to leave he trips him tries to grab a knife and he hits him with a stick there's a whole bunch of things that he does that Morgan illustrates that hey you just can't you won't be able to get past me. But anyway, after the peanut butter protein bar scene, it's clear that, okay, Nick kind of does like Morgan, and maybe there's something Nick can learn from Morgan. Who is this guy? What is what is going on here? Who? How does he know how to fight? Why is he not killed? You know, what's his deal? But anyway, Morgan decides to head off to the road to see, to survey, see if anybody's coming, make sure everybody's okay. Just basically scout ahead and make sure they're not being followed by walkers or anything else. But while he's away, the mouse decides to play, and so he goes through Morgan's pack and sees the the art of peace by Morihai Ueshiba and he finds Althea's camera and sees Morgan's interview and especially the scene I lose people then I lose myself and while that's happening just as that's happening Morgan spots Ennis's El Camino obviously he doesn't know who that is but either way it's careening down the, the highway and that's never a good sign really and you never know what's going to happen so he rushes down and tries to c- cover Nick in the van just as it's screaming past and Nick spots Ennis's El Camino and he flips out to the point where he's fighting Morgan to try to get out while Morgan is trying to just basically protect him. To the point where Nick actually beats on Morgan's gunshot wound on his leg. That's how desperate he is to get out to try to get this guy. And Nick busts out throws Morgan on the console and Morgan sets this horn off in the SWAT van that just continues to blur out through basically the entire episode almost until they get the van out of the ditch. But Morgan pays no mind to that. He runs after Nick as as fast as he possibly waddling can. Nick escapes and is just feverishly running after this car. We see that obviously he does not catch up with this car. And just then we kind of head back to Althea and, and Alicia and Strand and Luciana at the service station 
direction that they head to. And Alicia's had this kind of a sword that she's been swinging around. It's it's basically the receiver assembly for like a, a machine gun that they've cut out in such a way that it kind of cuts through the air. And it makes a kind of whooshing noise. And Althea makes a mention of, hey, aren't you worried about the noise attracting more walkers? And she's like, hey, more for me to kill. So I just thought that was very interesting, like where she is as a person. I don't care. Bring them on, basically. Just how far they've descended. I, I also noticed one more thing is that John makes a little remark about, hey, we should just find some gas and maybe after this is all over, you know, we get the get the truck out, you get your building 51, and then we can get back to finding Laura, you know, basically the person that he's trying to look for. Now, I've seen only maybe one or two people maybe linking the Walking Dead's Laura. Remember how Laura was missing after Dwight shot her? That Laura is the one that they're talking about. I don't know how plausible that is. It depends really where John Dory started off. If he was back east, and again, this is several months after the end of The Walking Dead, basically after Negan's been defeated. So anything is possible. I, I suppose if John was was back east in the DC area, Laura ran away. She was gone for a pretty long time. She was gone for several days. It's possible that she busted in, tried to get better, and basically something happened. So it's a very interesting kind of concept to kind of wrap your head around. Sometimes names do link up. They're rarely, if ever, have been names that have overlapped in these universes. So I can see them, first of all, running out of names. But so far, n- no, not really. Some people have speculated that some names in Fear have overlapped, but I think now that they're really resolving themselves to a more cohesive universe, I think they're going to start to make certain threads apparent. But in any case, I I just thought it was an interesting remark from John, basically, hey, you know, I'm all about trying to get back on track now. And after that remark, basically, Strand does bring up an interesting point to Althea, and maybe it's just a, a means for him to kind of evaluate her in front of her. He basically says, like, you're going on and on about this story, and meanwhile, you're putting yourself at great risk to get this story that great risk being this unfriendly group of series regulars. And he just basically wants to know why. You know, especially when there's nobody around to actually watch it. What what does it really matter? What does the truth matter? What does the story matter if nobody's there to watch it? And I think maybe this is Althea's way to build a future. Well, actually, in Judaism, they bring up a concept called tikkun olam, which means like basically healing the world or changing the world or fixing the world is probably the more apt description. And it's not just a physical thing. It's, it's more of a people, like a bridge building thing. When asked about this, Althea basically says that it's just a means to get to the truth. And sometimes even if it's heard once, and even if it's heard out loud only once, you know, it, it matters. Because in in a way, yeah, you can look at Althea, she's a journalist in the apocalypse and it doesn't really make much sense. But I think in a world where you could pretend to be a king and have a tiger and fake it till you make it, there's some sort of value in saying, hey, hey, like a fight club kind of philosophy. You know, the truth is here the truth is staring you at the face you know they don't hide in this don't hide in that don't pretend this or that don't don't pretend to be something even hard or evil to get what you want the truth is here confront it this is what the apocalypse is all about confronting your truth living your life at least on your own terms you know being this better person or this person that you've always wanted to be in the apocalypse just be honest with yourself and the people around you and maybe that's what Althea is trying to her way of trying to build this better world and then right away Alicia basically says I have no idea 
idea how she's alive. And it's kind of, we were kind of saying the same thing in the first episode. How how did John Dory last this long? I mean, obviously he's a capable marksman, but at the same time, you know, when you're going after lofty things, these weird, you know, don't you have bigger concerns kind of things. When Althea's sole purpose is to really meet people to get stories rather than trying to meet people to build a community to survive or something like that, it, it really does say a lot about people. But I do kind of understand now where she's coming from after watching this episode a couple of times. And Luciana does pick up on this. It's something I mentioned earlier. She basically says she knows her shit, except that shit about the truth. So she's recognizing that she knows what she's doing. She's definitely a capable person, but I think her thing about the truth is full of shit. And maybe she's right. Maybe it's not It's not to get to the story or the truth of the story. Maybe there's more to it. Maybe it's just that when people relieve themselves and say it out loud, maybe it's not really about the truth. It's about getting to who a person is really and maybe dealing with that person after the truth is out. We cut to Nick actually running to catch up with Ennis in the El Camino and on his way he spies this patch of blue bonnets and it flashes back to he and Madison in the car in the past. Remember Nick and Madison went out to finally get some supplies because of the crops. Crop yield is all gone to waste. Every single thing. Weevils got to them all. So he and Madison are out in the wild and he basically admits defeat right away. The first thing that happens when they get out to the car and they drive out is they bump into Mel on the way out. He's doing his thing about staying in his little lawn chair and surveying the stadium. He's pretty chill for a hipster. And he basically just warns him, hey, look, it's Slim Pickens out there unless you know where to look. And we know where to look. Says that Charlie doesn't like children's books. And he basically throws the little prince book back to, he basically wings it at Nick. Almost in like disgust. Like, hey, you know, I found Charlie. She's, we take care of her. She's fine. You know, you don't need to insert yourself in her life. And really, Nick just, as they're driving out and he, they're out on the road, he just admits def- defeat to Madison. It's, what are we going to do? I mean, there, there's really no other way. I, I just don't see any way out of this. And Madison just, like, how do you do it, Madison? And Madison just goes, look, every time we go out there, I try to see something good. It just reminds me of how this world was and could be again. And it reminds me of the little things that we fight for. You know, it could be like a, like a, an old billboard or a, an armadillo, just something silly. Mainly evidence that people were helped in, a, in some sort of way. Somebody reached out and helped somebody else. And that's kind of like a good sign, something good. And we kind of zoom back to the present. And you know, while Nick is picking the blue bonnets, we got walkers and Nick tries to deal with them, but he is having a lot of trouble with that last one. Again, I am not a diehard fear fan, so I'm not necessarily sure of the background. But to me, I see the hammer and it takes me back to Tyrese from Walking Dead. And Morgan catches up just in time to put them down. Morgan tells them, hey, let's go someplace safe. And then they kind of walk into the nearby town and walk into a, a store. Nick takes a moment to ask Morgan, why'd you save me? Why did you help me? Because if it was me, I'd just let them rip me apart back there. He does tell Nick that he's been in his place before. He knows that pain. He knows that hurt. And that you going there and confronting whoever's in that car isn't going to do anything. It's not going to solve anything. But obviously Nick doesn't, doesn't care. He's not listening. It kind of brings us to back to The Walking Dead. How Rick basically says, hey, why'd you save me? Season one, hey, I was out there alone. You had your kid. You had no need to save this complete stranger who could have probably hurt you. And I always also kind of find it funny that Rick and Nick sound the same. And it also brings up another very interesting point by the end of, you know, more we find out about Nick and his character and and then also what Rick becomes. At a certain point in season eight, you see Rick rushing down. This is after Carl has died, him losing the best part of himself, his son, the thing that makes him want to reform to do better. And you see this group of saviors. They're about to head to the hilltop and Rick 
all of a sudden, instead of giving the signal to the rest of the hilltop that the, this cavalcade is coming, this whole um, parade of cars that are going to head over and, and hurt the hilltop, he sees Negan driving the, the Dodge Challenger. And instead of warning them, he rushes down recklessly to get at Negan. And Nick is kind of acting the same way with Ennis right now. So Nick, Rick, they rhyme. It's just a very interesting juxtaposition. What's more interesting about that is that Nick does this, and so does Rick, in spite of what effect it may have on other people. And Nick has done this throughout the series. He's put himself in, in these dangerous situations that may... And it, it, like You could say the same thing about Jesus, but Jesus at least has sense. You know, Jesus knows that where his expertise can land him. He knows that if he... Like, like, when he met, basically, Rick for the first time, he knew that he could take people in hand-to-hand combat in close quarters. You know, basically making any sort of firearm redundant. So it's not as if Jesus jumps into these situations ham-fisted and haphazardly. He has a sense of what his limitations are. He plays to those strengths. And he's strategic. He's smart. He's light on his feet. Nick doesn't really have that athletic ability. He just has a propensity for danger. And Rick, in a sense, does too. When we see him go after Negan, it's not as though he was a very good marksman. And he's not been a typically good shot on the show. The thing that he shows the most, and this is something that Nick shows as well, is that he has this weird kind of resolve. This almost supernatural kind of resolve. And we see this both with Nick and Rick throughout the series. The way he's able to get out of situations by almost sheer willpower. So I I just thought that was a very good comparison to make. We flash back to the past again with Madison and Nick. And basically they've hit empty. Every single place they seem to go has been pickling before they get there. And then they hit this one place. And as they're they're about to get in, they notice Ennis is uh, Blue El Camino. And they're they're looking at the back of the pickup and it seems as though all the stuff from the place they were just about to raid uh, is in the back of the truck. And, And just as they're about to survey things, Ennis is coming out with a box of stuff. You find out basically that the group has been kind of careless. The way that Charlie was able to relay all the information to the vultures has been through the radio. And then you find out when Charlie exits the same cabin that they were about to raid. The camp in the stadium is radioing them in and Madison takes heed to actually turn off the radio as they're radioing in and hears the other radio in Charlie's hands as she walks out of the cabin. And it's the most awkward moment ever. Charlie is just gobsmacked. Ah, so again, Charlie just kind of being a foil to these guys. Maybe a Charlie horse? Uh, maybe. Just saying. I mean, throughout all these scenes, we don't really know what Charlie thinks. She doesn't really say anything in response to either person. All you see is that at the end, she ends up running to the vultures, no matter what. So she really has done a Robert Johnson. She's really sold her soul to the devil. In the meantime, Nick is having a very, very hard time being outside. And we start to realize what it was that Nick was really afraid of in terms of leaving the diamond. And it really wasn't as much the anxiety. Maybe that was an initial thing. The little, uh, his, him trying to get past his agoraphobia. But maybe it's something more than that. And as Nick is trying to walk away, basically trying to resist the urge to really throttle Ennis. Ennis takes a dig at him. Basically saying, at least I can feed my family. And basically, all the work that he'd been do- doing at the stadium to try to live within his limitations. You know, trying to stay in the diamond because that's where he wants to be. He wants to provide for his family. He wants to farm. It seems to be that when he's in there, he's his best self rather than this chaotic danger seeking person while he's on the outside and maybe something worse and then when Ennis says that he loses his goddamn mind he pulls out a knife and just tries it just backs into him almost slits his throat you know if not for Madison I we don't know what would have happened and to the point where he almost doesn't stop and he cuts Ennis is just gives him a little cut to remember him by and what really horrifies Nick and we see this a little later on is that he's basically beating himself up for his behavior in front of Charlie like for all the stuff they've been trying to do for 
Charlie, build the room, give her the book, and basically preparing this place so that she could come back. It's like, you know, no matter what he does, he did the one thing that would make Charlie horrified to ever come back to this group. And that's what really gets him the most. That's why he didn't read the leave the diamond. It's because you know, be, he says being out there makes me feel more trapped than being in there. Because it makes it makes you feel like you have to descend to a certain level. And I, I just found it very odd that he does this. And they do this basically in front of a church. He's finally admitting what it is. He's saying out loud what it is that makes him want to stay inside the diamond. And you do see this. You see this time and time again. I mean, in fact, it's, it's very telling because the very first scene we see Nick in this series is a church. You know, he's inside a church and he's, you know, he's being this dangerous fellow and, and now that we're outside of a church you just see this kind of juxtaposition like we, I know how I am in the in the outside world. I know I'm the person I don't want to have to be. You know, if it's, if it's the danger thing, I don't want to have to chase this danger over and over again. I don't want to live in that. But also, I don't want to have to be this type of person who just loses himself kind of like Morgan. You know, it's very oppressive. It's, I just want it to stop. We head back to the present and Nick offers to rewrap Morgan's bandages and it's basically the least he can do for trying to, for saving him back there by the blue bonnets. And Morgan just says, hey, look, the least you can do is not get into trouble. Nick makes a snide remark about, hey, look, you know this karate. I mean, you should be capable. And he goes, it's not karate, karate man. But anyway, he basically calls Nick out and he says, no matter what Ennis did, it's not going to turn out like you think. You know, you're not going to just get this guy and the world is right again. And we do kind of see that later on when it comes to Charlie. You may have thought that the way to kind of get at Ennis was to kill him or something. But at the end of the day, if the goal was to keep Charlie, then you giving her nightmares is exactly the thing you did not want to give her. This is not the way to go. But Nick just gives it right back to Morgan. He just cannot help from ripping open scabs. After seeing the video, he's like, I bet you killed. You know, who did you lose? I saw the tape. I heard everything you said. And Morgan is distraught. You know, he's fighting this idea of, look, I want, I'm stuck between not wanting to be around people. I really did not want to have to get into this. You know, and he basically said, I'm not telling you this. I'm not telling you my life. And then Morgan does something for the first time. He really, he says, you know what? It's like, I'm walking away. You want to hunt down whoever hurt you? It's your business. And he just walks away. And he is walking away. You see him walking away from the town. We'll take a moment to head back to Althea. While the car is being towed up, Strand basically strikes a deal. I will give you the story. We'll do everything you need to do. But you need to be the one that brings us to Building 51. You just bring us all the way. And and he says all the way until the end. And I thought that was a very interesting, ominous line. It kind of tells us that these people are going to be stuck together for a pretty long time. And Althea just wants to reiterate, hey, you'll answer all my questions and let me feel you doing what you need to do. And Alicia basically says, in in the most unconvincing way possible, she says, deal. I just feel like she's going to violate that deal at her earliest convenience. It just feels like she's not in the right headspace to agree to things. I don't think she's in the most, you know, she's willing to be out in the middle of nowhere and, and trick complete strangers, be they good or bad, into taking their van. I just don't think she's in the right state of mind to be able to agree to terms, like honorable terms. And so we, we kind of cut to Morgan. And he's actually walking away from the town and he encounters Ennis. And Ennis basically says, hey, keep, keep walking, old man. There's nothing for you here. And Morgan just behooves himself to kind of tell him, you know, as he's looking around, he's just trying to see if there's any sign of anybody and who this person is. Is there anybody else there? And he basically says, you need to leave. And Nick had basically been following him. And we kind of see this vision of Nick approaching with the hammer. He starts to approach. And he comes at Ennis. And Ennis is kind of like, hey. And it's weird. Some time has passed between the past and the present. And Ennis just seems like he is in this utter disbelief at seeing Nick again. Morgan immediately stops Nick and says, you don't want to do this. It's not going to turn out the way you think. And Nick is enraged. He's basically saying to Morgan, are you willing to do 
what it takes to get in my way. And it's at that moment that Morgan kind of stops and stops struggling with Nick. And he's right. And at the end of the day, this is not what Morgan wants. It's definitely not what Morgan needs. He does not need to be involved with somebody and lose himself and care about somebody and the, the way their state is. I mean, he had a hard enough time with that lonely man on the road and ended up burying him. Yeah, he tried to help him, but he didn't want the help. And he's doing the same thing with Nick. He's just walking away. And, and look, it's a little easier to bear when you don't get nearly as involved. And maybe he's just navigating the space the best way he can. But I don't know what the right decision was here. Maybe Nick was more reachable. And it seemed as though he was starting to be. And Nick just wanders into the silo or shed that Ennis is in. And Morgan is walking away. But as Morgan is walking away, he's on the road. He's kind of a little bit outside of the town they were in. And he spots the very patch of blue bonnets that Nick had almost fallen to walkers over. And he sees the blue bonnets and the dead. And he thinks back to something that made him remember what it means to do what he's doing to walk this line of not killing. And it's at the idea that all life is, pre- is precious. He sees the blue bonnets and that's all he sees. It's kind of like the what, what Madison sees in the blue bonnets. Just something good. You know, the good out here. And he rushes back. And Ennis is trying to fend off Nick's furious attacks. And Morgan tries to reach Ennis in time. Or, well, Ennis. Nick. But we see Nick throw Ennis onto a set of deer antlers. And not only does he do that, I, for all intents and purposes, Ennis is, may have been fine. We don't even know. But Nick actually pushes him into the antlers and just ends him. And not only that, but he pushes him down slowly and agonizingly and painfully. And it's just then that Morgan seems to catch up with Nick. And as Nick is leaving the actual shed, he sees his blood-soaked hands. In like a last-ditch attempt, Morgan is basically appealing to Nick. You definitely feel that Morgan's trying. He, he wants to help this kid. He doesn't want him to go down this same kind of bloodthirsty, angry path. Obviously, he's already kind of quenched part of that thirst. He's answering the questions he originally asked. Who is it that you loved? What made you lose yourself? And he basically just says, without any prompting, it was my wife, my son, and my friends. That's who I lost before I lost myself. I know where you are, Nick, because I was there. I didn't know how to make it stop. I didn't know if I wanted it to stop. I just didn't think I would. I could ever find my way out. Then I met someone. The man didn't have to help me, but he did. He gave me something. He showed me that all life is precious, and that helped. It still does. And I think with all the flashbacks going back and forth between Madison and Nick, and Madison reminding him that just to look for the good things, just look for the good out here. And I feel like he was almost open to it. And when Morgan is about to sh- is showing him the book that Nick had rifled through his stuff over, Nick almost seems kind of resistant. He's like, you know, what is this hokey nonsense about peace? You know, the art of peace. What is that? And and Morgan pleads with him. He says, believe me, I, I, it's not. It's not hokey. It's not too late. Just, you know what? Read it. We can talk about it. We can talk about anything, Nick. And, you know, in the very next scene, you see him rifling through the book. And it feels like Morgan is, he's trying to reach out to Nick. He's trying to give him something to latch onto, something good that sticks with him instead of something good that he has to find every now and again to kind of remind him what they're surviving for. But we kind of have to flash back to Luciana and, and John Dory having gone after Nick and Morgan while Strand... Alicia and Althea were towing out the car. And John Dory has a little moment with Luciana. He's basically asking her why Nick cracks that joke about make sure she she comes back. Because he has his own love story. Uh, He he has this person who left and never came back, this Laura of his. And he basically wants to know, maybe for himself, that, you know, why does does Nick make that joke? You know, did you leave? And if you did leave, why did you? And and you know what? Maybe, Maybe that's not really the right question and I'm sorry for asking, but did you love him? She says, I left, but I still loved him. And maybe that's what John needed to hear. And and, uh, he gives her basically... 
one of his John Dory candies to kind of, you know, as a little peace offering. I called it his piece of candy offering, like P-E-A, P-E-A-C-E. Yeah, I think that was a little touching moment. And, and basically, as this is happening, Althea, Alicia, and Strand in the van pull up behind them, and they head, they head to the town that the arrow was pointing to on the side of the road. We see Nick rifling through the art of peace, and in the background as Morgan is trying to straighten himself out. Basically, Althea's van catches up with our group, and Althea pulls over, and she kind of surveys the van, and, and she's realizing something is that the lock that was holding some of her tapes had been busted, and she freaks the fuck out. She looks through her boxes of tapes, and the one thing that's there that's very interesting is that all of them are labeled the bog. They have numbers of basically representing the tapes that are probably in there. And one of the last boxes is 17 through 24, and there's three different boxes, so I'm guessing there's eight tapes per box. You're talking about an hour per tape. It's probably 24 hours f- full of footage. So as she's freaking about this thing, she realizes all her tapes are there and accounted for. We don't know exactly what that's about. You know, is it that she's losing all these tapes, the truth, the story? Is it maybe something else? Is she recording it for somebody else's purpose? Is she part of the vultures? So that's some questions that we may have. I mean, maybe it's not, maybe Luciana is more right than we think she is. Maybe it's something a little bit more sinister. Maybe Althea isn't who she says she is. It'd be interesting to see who's on some of those tapes. I'd be very curious if any of our Walking Dead people could be on those tapes. I doubt it. I mean, but we don't know where Althea came from. Yeah, they're in Texas, but maybe she came from East. It kind of also reminded me of, and I didn't think this when she first was taping people's conversations, but it kind of reminded me of Alexandria with uh, Diana. Who's Diana? When they first came and she interviewed each and every one of them. It'd be really cool if there was any interviews with Walking Dead characters. God, I would love to see her have interviewed like Abraham or something. But it kind of begs to be seen. In the meantime, we see Nick put away the book in his back pocket, the same back pocket that one of the blue bonnets is in. As he's taking it out and admiring it, we flash back to the past. And Madison and he drive by a field of blue bonnets as they, and they pull over to check them out. And Nick and Madison get out and check out the field. And Madison just says, I told you it was still good out here. And we see Nick in the past. He's laying down in this field of blue bonnets and other other different flowers. I know what blue bonnets are because I lived for many years in upstate New York doing a lot of gardening. So they are rather beautiful, beautiful wildflowers. And we cut to the present and immediately we hear a gunshot and Nick looks down at his chest. And he's looking at this. I feel like the, the shots in this episode of the present, they get more, as we see the blue, blue bonnets, we see them that they're ultra blue. They, they seem to me the most blue and colorful thing in the, in the episode. But the more we get into the present, the more washed out and blue and colorless things are. And so when Nick looks at the blue blood that he has picked off of his chest these, as he's touched his chest the blood itself is just so almost viscous almost looking it's, just, it's so dark the color is just so dark and, and, and so washed out and bereft of color you can't even see the red almost just one thing that I just noted when I was looking at that scene I'm like what, is, he, is he picking out mud from his chest and I just can't believe what's going on we see that it was Charlie that shot him he has this look of like a disappointed crushed shocked look on his face that she would do this and says Charlie and she runs off. The other group arrives, but I'm not sure if they necessarily caught that it was Charlie. Alicia seems to notice somebody. I don't know if she picked up that it was her, but obviously their first concern is to to Nick and to try and, and save him. But I mean, it's not possible. And it's, it's actually a very gut-wrenching scene. Even if you're not an avid Fear the Walking Dead fan, because again, like I said, I am not. I, I did find that scene very heartbreaking. The reaction from Alicia, the reaction from all of them. Morgan just kind of watching the whole thing in a sort of numb sadness 
sadness but also a numbness that he's seen this so many times before and just the way it was shot i think it was very beautifully done we have this scene and he's lying there and everybody's trying to save him nick is struggling he's choking on him his own blood obviously he's hitting the lungs and everybody's rushing over to try to help him and he's down and nobody can do anything and, and alicia is just trying to tell him it's okay it's basically telling him it's okay over and over again i mean they try to do something but they can't and nick just dies then and there and we, we suddenly shoot off into the past and it's this saturated this full of color scene of nick lying down in this field of flowers you know it's a close-up shot too so it's mostly green it's the grass and it's not only blue bonnets now it's it's daisies mostly it's daisies blue bonnets and it's just full of color it's just so contrast from the blue washed out colors in the present and even the warm tones in the past it was just so much more full color it was on par for me for like the tyrese episode when tyrese was uh, killed off in tyrese's send-off episode there was a lot of flashbacks with kind of a dreamlike haze with uh past passed away characters so it was a little different but it got me it got me damn it got me in the fields and nick appears to be waking up after dozing off in that field of flowers that he and madison had found and just like that he wakes up and he just falls back asleep and the credits play with no music and that's pretty much where the episode ends and you know as much as a lot of people like to talk about how that scene was kind of an homage to nick and how that was sort of a good send-off and, and it was for days i was just in this really weird fog it hit me so abruptly and so hard that, like there's something about this character that resonated with me this almost Almost the kind of irredeemable character that you would find in the in in the non-apocalypse that has found a way to thrive in post-apocalyptic times. Just to see what Morgan and him go through, what peace Morgan could have brought Nick. Just the beginning of this relationship start to form between him and Morgan, and maybe it could have been a master-to-student relationship, but maybe just a good friend, a really a good friend that can actually talk about these things, these feelings that he's had while in the apocalypse, killing somebody and. And then realizing that there may be an actual way to come back and feel like I can live out here and still be somebody who cares about other people without having to kill or put other people in danger or be addicted to danger or drugs or any sort of dangerous situations or feel like I have to be a certain way that the outside world makes me suffocate you know that I can be that it could be a person in the world find a, a way to manage things to find peace to see that all life is precious and then all of a sudden that life is taken away from us that chance and it's something that I personally always haven't had an issue with when I see the kind of potential that somebody has, you know, or a situation or relationship starts to form and all of a sudden it's ripped away from you, that opportunity. It's something that I've always had an issue with. It's something that's hard for me to recover from. Now, I mean, I'm, I'm much older now and, and I think I've had a, more of a problem with this in my 20s than I do now at my 39s or almost 40s, let's just say. But it's still something that really hits me really hard and, and I think that's what has really made me pause before actually starting to record this episode episode because there's a part of me that identifies with this so much there's there are memories that are linked to this kind of idea of this relationship potential that is wasted in any case putting my feelings aside for a moment we go to the sneak peeks and there are a couple of points to touch on so the scenes that we're seeing here right now these these couple scenes these are actually filmed through Althea's camera and we see through Althea's camera that uh, Alicia puts down Walker Ennis because apparently you know he wasn't taken care of after Nick killed him in that same shot we see Strand 
Strand covering Nick's body. And also that Strand is being interviewed by Althea, so she does get him to sit down and, and talk. And it does seem as though they do reach Building 51, and it's not only just the interviews, she's actually doing some sort of like field reporting too. So there is some sort of story that's being told through this camera. You know, we went back to the past, and we see that Naomi is advising everybody, hey, maybe it's time we they sought out a new place. Maybe it's just not about, maybe they just give it up and they just move on. They could build a new life somewhere else and just leave these vultures behind, let them have it. Uh, it also looks like, do you remember those Fear of the Walking Dead uh, promos for the season? There's a, there's actually a song by Dr. Dog, which yeah, which we actually play as background music to some of these to our episodes in Fear of the Walking Dead. And it's that, that season four promo with the little piano in the beginning. They are going to be going to the water park in the next episode, so that should be kind of fun. Maybe it's like a new place. We don't know. Another sneak peek that we see involves, this is an extended sneak peek, is we see Madison Mel having a dialogue. Madison just meets him outside. He's basically cooking wieners, and he asks her if, you know, it's a baseball stadium, she must have relish. And But he's kind of observing that, hey, they must have put all the condiments on the stuff they probably didn't want to eat. Kind of almost like rubbing it in their faces while, you know, we're eating wieners and we're eating all the condiments in the way that things should be. And uh, Madison does bring up how Ennis keeps beating them to every place they try to scavenge. This is where Mel basically brings up again, hey, you know, there's uh, every time you send someone out, there's a chance uh, they won't come back again. And Madison does take pains to actually say that, hey, I know they'll come back because they're my people. They're capable. These are my people. You think you know who we are, but you don't know what you're messing with. And I think that's the thing. I think maybe the big underestimation that Mel is making is that maybe these are two good people. Maybe they're trying to create a community. You know, they wouldn't harm a fly. And maybe that's what they showed Charlie. And that's and that's probably the fatal flaw is that he's viewing all this from the lens of a child who has been taken well care of. And they probably haven't had to do anything very sinister or violent, which of course lends to the idea that the vultures only pick off of good people. And so they've never had to see these people, these good people, do anything really bad. And I'm not saying that they will, but we all know what Madison is capable of, and she could go Mama Bear at any moment, and in probably the best sort of way, the most tactical and tactful, let's say, way, and still sort of engender a kind of sort of peaceful, cooperative, peace-loving sort of way, and maybe it doesn't have to go that way, but I don't think she would hold back if it came down to it. Oh yeah, and we do have a scene where Morgan does go to John, and I think they're in the van at, the, at this moment, and he's saying, uh, and I'm better off on my own, and I think this is a response to Nick having died. In the last, uh, I think the Talking Dead sneak peek, we see Strand and Cole in some sort of uh, cages. This could be in the diamond, but we see like a whole bunch of acupuncture walkers. These these walkers have acupuncture needles on their faces and everywhere. I think like on their back and arms and stuff. Actually, yeah, we do see them on the hands because I think Cole is having a bit of trouble with one of them because I think one of them catches them. A whole bunch of needles on Cole's hand. We vaguely see that he's being hurt by one of these walkers that has these needles on them. So that could mean something about it, you know what could happen if an acupuncture needle that happened to be inside a walker touches somebody it could be like the the knives that were dipped in walker guts you know so i don't know the extent of which that would actually hurt cole and we do see in one of the more action-packed sneak peeks that one of the acupuncture needle walkers is either thrown on top of cole or or just falls really hard on top of Cole so there is that threat as well so that's pretty much it I think the one thing to remember throughout all this is that this season is going to be playing around with time we're definitely
definitely going to be seeing more of Nick. He's not off the show completely. This may have been a way to solidify his exit from the series, but as for the season, I think he's going to be playing throughout because of the way we're jumping back and forth between time. And I think there's a lot more questions that we need to answer in terms of what has happened to the group even before the the flashbacks where the color is warmer and more orangey. There are still questions that need to be answered about what happened between when the dam broke or the dam was exploded until they got to the diamond. Things have happened. Luciana had to have come back between now and then. And how did Nick get his this way? Where did Madison find peace? And I think some of these characters like John Dory are going to reveal themselves more. And Althea is definitely going to... There's definitely more to Althea than we think. So far, it seems like as much as I love John Dory, some of the scenes that he were he was in in this episode was were almost more comical like you better do what he says you know drop it <laughs> things like that it, you see him being like almost comic foil and i, I definitely want to see a little bit more out of him than just a bit of comedy because i mean as much as i love garrett dillahunt in this role and he does do comedy pretty well i just think that we could be seeing a little bit more a little bit more balanced you know i like the idea of going back and forth between slight comedy relief and and, and more seriousness but sometimes it's those characters that are more engendering you know more endearing and you kind of connect with a little bit more and Nick had some of that as well Nick had this kind of happy-go-lucky kind of attitude and it's kind of good to see in a character and I think that's really why it's so hard for me to let go of him. I mean there was a there was a charm and, and way about him that was whimsical and carefree and it's something that I think a lot of us want to identify with we, we could see ourselves being that guy if only for a moment but this guy kind of lived his life that way and meanwhile there is more to talk about in terms of the vultures and again this is something i'm going to bring up again and again so far we haven't seen them actually lift a finger in terms of hurting anybody you know we do see a little bit of aggression but other than that we don't see violence well i mean we see a lot of people waiting it out and just basically playing their hands strategically moving themselves in ways in which it almost defeats them without lifting a finger and maybe that's their strategy you pick on these good people and you you basically test their limits to see what they're willing to do to fight you and it's like, it's like really like almost a fight club mentality what does it take for them to throw the first punch and who knows what they're capable of besides weaponizing walkers and, and hoarding them and, and putting numbers on boxes and buildings and silos what else are they capable of there is a clear idea or an implication that they are the ones who exploded the silo in that camp. So maybe they actually put the walkers in the silo, plugged up the, the bleed valve, you know, basically trying to wait out the town and forced its hand. And that could be what those walkers were in the cage. The vultures may have found a way to, to weaponize the walkers in their truck and lead them into the stadium to basically force their hands, like almost smoke them out. So there may be an element of using these walkers in a tactical way to kind of accelerate the process. So they're no dummies. I'm just wondering to what extent they're capable. Are they capable of direct violence as well? I mean, Ennis did seem to show a bit of self-defense and his ability to kind of fend off Nick for a little while seemed to be pretty capable. But in both Mel and Ennis were pretty protective over Charlie, showing a little bit of aggression when it came to not protecting her from our series regulars, but really to kind of protect her soul and heart and basically tell him, hey, we found her, we take care of her, it's not your problem, she's ours. When there's a whole other question revolving around Madison. In the beginning of the episode, 
episode, I mentioned that we do see maybe a little bit of foreshadowing that maybe something had happened to her. Maybe she turns. Maybe she gets bit. And we don't see her in the present. Now, it's hard for me to say that she bites it or that she has been bitten or something like that. I don't know if they're quite in that place. I don't know how much time has passed between the past and the present flashes. Because you can't really tell whether they're still mourning her loss or enough time has passed where they've found themselves at a place where they can move on. But something clearly happened between Ennis and Nick. And I don't think it's Charlie. I don't think it's enough. Maybe just having the vultures brought them to a place where they got desperate or anxious or they lost people even. I don't know about Madison. I don't know if Nick was murderous enough about losing Madison, but Madison is clearly not in the picture. Something is wrong. But part of me also thinks that maybe Madison joined with him. Madison has seemed compliant and ready to kind of meet up with Mel. Now, I don't think she did this in a way that was illustrating that she wanted to join up with him or that she wanted to be antagonistic, but she did want to show that, hey, I'm a capable person. I've lived out here. I'm not afraid of you. But I think there is also an element of she's completely capable and and confident in herself enough to meet this guy on his terms and, and maybe even, I feel like she may even hear him out. But something about those numbers in the present has clearly set them off and at some point they lost track of the vultures and Madison is missing. Maybe they took Madison. Maybe it was a matter of not even Madison joining up. Maybe they just took her by force and they've been trying to find her ever since. I'm kind of leaning more towards kidnapped personally. Definitely something went horribly wrong and obviously has driven them to this point to just be so desperate to try and get to where these guys are. Now the only other thing that concerns me is that we do meet this Naomi character and she's clearly not in the present. Obviously Cole is not there so I I feel like Cole's gonna bite it in the next episode anyway. I mean these these endearing little cute characters that try to impress other people tend to but um, Naomi's not there either and that to me is a little sad too and it could be that Madison and Naomi are together and maybe they've both been and this maybe I'll lean towards this series that they've both been captured by the vultures and they kind of ran off and our group basically lost track of them somehow and now they're finally seeing signs of where they've been so in the meanwhile what concerns me about Naomi is that what could have happened to her you know after everything this character has been through clearly she looks rattled she looks like she's been doing this for a very 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 long time and on her own and probably faced some horrors herself to kind of kill this person off almost seems cruel (laughs) cruel. I mean, after this group shows her this kindness and, and they gain this, this this person who seems to be okay. And there's also other factors as well. Like maybe Naomi is part of this group as well. She could just be a plant. All this stuff about me saying how the vultures pick on good people. Maybe Naomi had no intention of hurting them. Maybe she's playing up this character. So it's something to think about definitely. And so Carol, I, I throw this off to you. This is my call and I eagerly wait your response. That's it for me on Squawking Dead. Can't wait to cut this thing up and see what we come up with. Carol is the brainchild, baby. I love to hear your ideas. I am very curious to see where we go from here and find out what in the world happened to Madison and Naomi also because we don't know where she is either. That is my thoughts and can't wait to see what happens next. In the meantime, take care. <laughs>